Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm a pastor of a church in Duluth, Minnesota called The Landing, and I'm so glad to be here. I am Pastor Duncan's son, so I'm super thankful to be here this morning. Our, this morning's scripture reading is from Genesis 37, Genesis chapter 37. So if you have a Bible, feel free to follow along or on the screen behind me says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brother, brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and couldn't speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into a, this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, us, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the, the, robe in the blood. 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessing it is for me to worship you with these brothers and sisters in Christ. God, this is your church, and we ask that you continue to pour out your great grace on these people who you love dearly. We have nothing to offer you and everything to ask of you, and you teach us in your word to ask for the greatest things, so we ask you to forgive all our sin and help us to repent of it quickly. Help us to treasure your word in our hearts so that we will not sin against you. Give us understanding to keep your commandments and observe them with our whole heart. Give us life according to your steadfast love and hope in your salvation forever. Cause this church to be a people that are rooted and grounded in love. Give them the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. Fill them with the fullness of God according to the riches of your grace and may they exalt in your glorious name forever and ever. We ask these things for this church and for all the churches who love Christ and preach your word faithfully. But Father, we also think of the over 3 billion people, over 7,000 people groups that have not heard the gospel and are unreached. Jesus, you said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we ask you to send out laborers. Raise up many, even from among this body, who would go and spread the gospel in places where no one is proclaiming it. God, you have told us in your word that you have people from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues and languages. There will not be one people group or language or tribe missing when we worship you around your throne in eternity. So cause that promise that you have people across the globe to give us boldness and confidence to go to the nations with the gospel. You will succeed in your mission. Christ will have the bride that he died for. So use us as instruments to gather your bride. Now as we turn to the preaching of your word, I ask you to be with us. Lord, no one needs to hear from me this morning. We desperately need to hear from you and from your word. So I ask you to speak. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O God. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but your word endures forever. So sanctify us with the truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is breathed out by you, O God, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we this morning may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. It is such a blessing to be here. When my dad talks about North Shore, when I get to see him, he always says one thing repeatedly is that these people love God. And so I can't think of a better thing to be said about any church is that they're full of people who love God. So it's a privilege for me to be here and bring God's word this morning. We're in Genesis 37, which many of you probably know is the beginning of the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of the more well-known people in the Bible. But 
Some of you might say, I've heard this passage a hundred times. If that's true, praise God. And there is more to see here because God's word is a bottomless pit. So let's dive in together. Let me start with the big picture of this chapter. In Genesis 37, I think God is showing us big sin and bigger salvation. So we're seeing big sin and bigger salvation. On the one hand, the deeper you read in this chapter, the more messed up things get. Do you notice that as we read? It just gets worse and worse and worse as you read on the sin and the pain and the brokenness. But on the other hand, if you look at the end of the story in Genesis 50, Joseph tells us that we should see God working salvation in this chapter. So in Genesis 50:20, Joseph is talking to his brothers about what they did to him by selling him into slavery. And he says this, he says, as for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So if we're going to read Genesis 37 the way Genesis 50 tells us to, we need to see God working his plan to save many in this chapter. It's chapters of scripture like these that display God's rule over darkness and how he uses even sin to bring about his good and perfect plans. And that's true in your life if you're trusting in Christ. God is using the pain, the suffering, the hardships, the trials in your life to bring about his good plan. So as we see the depths of sin and brokenness in this chapter, let it cause us to see more clearly our Savior and his good purposes. So look with me again at verses 1 through 11. I'll read these again. Look at these. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So you can't read these first 11 verses without seeing the deep brokenness in this family. Back in Genesis 3, sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, and here 34 chapters later, we see sin dividing and fracturing this family. And as you read it, you can almost feel the hostility growing in this chapter. Maybe the first sign of brokenness is back in verse 2, where we see that Jacob has multiple wives. That's broken. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman, and going against God's design never works. It always causes problems. And for Jacob, one big problem that comes out of having multiple wives is that he doesn't love his wives equally. We're told earlier in Genesis 29 that Jacob had a favorite wife. He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah and the others. And that favoritism didn't end with his wives, but it carried on to his children. So 
Jacob's favorite wife, gives birth to his favorite son. And Jacob is not shy about letting everybody know that Joseph is the favored one. He makes him this wonderful coat of many colors, which everyone else sees as a sign of that's dad's favorite boy. Now, the Bible calls this sin partiality. James 2.9 says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, Jacob should be so thankful that God gave him any children. He should look at his kids and think, Wow, look at how merciful God has been to me that I have all these children. Even though I have multiple wives and have sinned against God, he has been so kind to me in giving me all these children. But instead of enjoying all the children God has given him, Jacob loves one far above the others, and it's tearing his family apart. And Joseph's brothers don't deal really well with their father's favoritism. Instead of talking to their dad about it, instead of dealing with the very person who's sinning against them, they take their frustration out on Joseph. It says in verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So they couldn't have a peaceful conversation with their brother. They're filled with jealousy. They can't stand seeing their dad fawn over Joseph. But then God gives Joseph these prophetic dreams where these bundles of wheat bow down to him and the sun, moon, 11 stars bow down to him. And Joseph is excited to tell everybody, I got these amazing dreams from God. Now, maybe 17-year-old Joseph should have known better and been a little more perceptive of the situation. He could have looked around and said, my brothers don't like me very much. It probably won't go over to well to say, yeah, you guys all bow down to me. It's probably not going to work well. But in Joseph's defense, I don't think he's trying to rub it in. I don't think Joseph is just trying to rub it in with his brothers. I think God has given him these dreams, and he's just like, I got to tell somebody. Look at what God is showing me. So he tells his family the dreams, and they understand exactly what these dreams mean. If you know the story of Joseph, you know most of the time, every other time, dreams come up. We don't know what they mean. And God gives Joseph the interpretation, and he has to tell people what these dreams mean. Not this time. This time, everybody sees, we know what this means. You think we're going to bow down to you. And they're not happy about it. I don't know how they had room to hate him more, but it says in verse 8 that they hated him even more for his dreams. So the fractures grow larger and larger in this family. Now, while there's plenty of blame to go around for the issues, the one who bears the most responsibility is Jacob for his repeated sins of partiality. And what's so odd about that, that's really weird, is because of all people, he should have known better. Because he experienced partiality tear his family apart as a young man. You might remember, if you know the story of Genesis, Jacob was a twin. So you have Jacob and Esau. Esau was dad's favorite. Jacob was mom's favorite. And that favoritism drove a wedge in that family and ended up splitting them. Because Jacob's mom goes to Jacob and says, let's make this plan where we steal Esau's blessing so that you can have it. And they go through with the plan, and then Esau wants to kill his brother, and Jacob has to run away. So you would think Jacob wouldn't do this, but he's doing the same cycle of sin that was done to him. So before we go on in the story, just two things to see here. First thing, sin in our lives is defeated one way by putting it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin in our lives is defeated one way by putting it to death by the power of the of the Holy Spirit. You would think that the one sin Jacob would be immune to is partiality because it's the one that brought so much pain and suffering and hardship into his life, but he's not immune. No one becomes immune to a certain expression of sin because it was done to them in the past. 
I would love to tell myself that I could never, ever, ever put somebody through some of the most painful sins done to me, but that's just not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Experience is not enough. Nobody overcomes sin by first being a victim of that sin. That's not the way sin is defeated. Our experience aren't enough, and also we see here neither is age. Sin doesn't magically fade with age. If you look forward in Genesis 42, you will see Jacob goes deeper into his sins of partiality. He has another son named Benjamin, and he clings even tighter to Benjamin than he did to Joseph. It just gets worse over time. Sin doesn't magically fade over time. It gets worse. It is so easy to minimize sin. I've done this, maybe you have, by believing the lie that I'll just outgrow this over time. You ever tell yourself, when I get older, I won't do that anymore. When I go to college, when I turn a certain age, when life slows down, when I retire next month, next year, that habit will be gone. These sinful thoughts will go away. Then I'll no longer have these sinful desires. Hear me, that's a lie. No one ages out of sins. We just get better at doing them and better at hiding them. The sin in our lives is defeated one way, by putting them to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see that in Romans 8.13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin has to be put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Sin is not like a mild cold that your body fights off without you having to do anything about it. If you get a cold, you don't have to really think about it usually. Your body just, you just rest for a little while, your body fights it off. No, sin is not like a cold. Sin is more like a bone spur. If any of you have had a bone spur, you know they do not go away over time. They just get worse and worse and worse. And the only way to get rid of them is someone has to go in and shave them down. That's what sin is like. It doesn't go away. It has to be cut off and put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't make peace with your sin. Don't make peace with your sin. Ask God to help you make war on your sin. And Christian, if your battle with sin seems hopeless, if you're in this area, this sin seems hopeless. I've been struggling and struggling. I don't know what to do. I feel absolutely hopeless. Be encouraged. Jesus has already won the war for you. If you're in Christ, you're fighting a winning battle with this sin. You're not in a losing battle. You're in a winning battle with this sin. You're fighting forgiven, paid-for sins. There is no sin in you, no evil craving, no wicked habit that is stronger than the Holy Spirit. So put them to death. Second thing we should see here is that God shows amazing grace to broken families. God shows amazing grace to broken families. All of our families are broken because they're full of a bunch of sinners. My family's broken for nothing else because I'm in it. And none of my family is here. You might have heard some amens if they were, but they're not here. So. But God is so good and so faithful to redeem and restore broken families. Think about Joseph's family and how this story ends. God is going to take the sinful jealousy and hatred these brothers have for Joseph and turn it around and use it to save them from famine and death. He's going to redeem this. And then, broken as this family is, God is going to send the Savior of the world through their offspring, through the line of Judah. And if you want to see just how messed up Judah was, go to chapter 38, and you're going to see there's, Judah's got some big issues, and yet God redeems all of it, and Jesus Christ comes through the line of Judah. If your family looks like a shattered mess, hope in God. Hope in God. What others mean for evil, God means for good. What is broken, God can restore. And what has caused pain, God can redeem. 
So now let's go back to the passage. Look at the next section, verses 12 through 24. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into, one, into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So in verses 1 through 11, the tension is building, and now it just explodes. Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. He's already given one bad report of them before, so this is probably not going to go well. But Joseph willingly goes, and when his brothers see him off in the distance, their anger and their jealousy boil over and they plot, saying, let's kill this guy. And you might know, I know at one point, I think you guys went through the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about sinful anger, in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he talked about sinful anger and murder together. But Reuben tries to secretly save his brother. He convinces his brothers not to kill him, thinking, I'll rescue Joseph later and this will work out. So they take Joseph, take his robe, and throw him in this pit. Now, it's easy, at least for me, maybe for you, to read this with just no sympathy for these brothers. It's easy to read this and think, what are you doing? I get Joseph, it's kind of, you know, you don't like him and he's dad's favorite. I get that, that's not fun, but... How could you do this to your brother? How could you possibly think about killing your own brother? But just imagine for a moment being in their shoes. I'm not saying what they did was right, it was wrong, not excusing it, but just for a second, imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes. What would it be like if your dad made it clear that he loves your sibling more than you? Can you imagine your dad having multiple wives at the same time? And one day you come home and you find your mom sobbing and you say, What's wrong? And she says to you with tears running down her face, your dad loves your other, his other wife. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. How angry would you be for your mom? And day after day, you watch your dad laughing and playing with your little brother in ways that he never laughed or played with you, and you feel like an outcast, and you wonder, what's so wrong with me that dad won't play with me like that, that he doesn't love me like that, that he won't give me a coat like that? There's a lot of pain there and buildup over years and years. How do you deal with that pain? How do you deal with that pain? That pain has to go somewhere. Maybe you feel that kind of pain. Maybe you've experienced the painful effects of repeated sin done to you again and again and again, and it's built up over years. If that's you, 
Hear me for a second. Revenge will never heal the deep wounds you have from the sins of others. Revenge will never heal the deep wounds you have from the sins of others. It's not wrong that these brothers are hurt. There is an appropriate righteous anger to have over the sin done to them. But they listen to the lie of revenge. You know that revenge whispers a dangerous lie to us. It says, that deep pain you feel from that person, I can make that go away. I can make that go away. I can give you the closure you need. They deserve what's coming to them. And you need to get rid of this hurt. You'll feel better. Revenge says that. Revenge makes a promise it cannot keep. Sin never heals the wounds of sin. Sin can never heal the wounds of sin. When you're wronged and when you're sinned against and it hurts, there is one place you need to go with your hurt. You need to run to God. You need to run to God. Bring your pain to Him. Don't let your emotions rule you. Go to God. Leave revenge to Him. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will repay. And not only will He repay, but we see in the life of Joseph that God alone can heal the wounds of sin that have been done to you. Joseph is sinned against by his brothers in horrible ways, but God heals Joseph and helps him to forgive. If you look forward, it says in Genesis 41:51, this is after Joseph has been raised up to second in command in Egypt, it says, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Joseph names his firstborn son Manasseh because the name Manasseh means to forget. But that word forget doesn't mean like when you forget where I put my phone. It's not that kind of forgetting. Joseph didn't lose the memory of what his brothers did. Because if you look in chapter 42, Joseph's brothers come up and he weeps three times. He just starts crying because he knows what happened. He didn't lose the memory of it. That's not what this forgetting means. This kind of forgetting is more like what God says in Hebrews 8.12 when it says, God will remember their sins no more. Don't you love that? God remembers their sin. It's not like God forgets. He knows all things, but he forgives, and he doesn't hold our sins against us. That's what happens to Joseph. God enables him to forgive his brothers and not take revenge on them when he had opportunity, and he names his son Manasseh to show, God has helped me forget to forgive what has happened. So go to God for healing. Only he can give you peace. Only he can help you forgive. And only he can give you perfect justice. That's what these brothers should have done. But instead, they try to heal sin with more sin. So back to the passage. It says, Joseph's in the pit. And it says, then they sat down to eat. So you see how hard their hearts have become. Their brothers in this pit crying out for help. And they're over here eating lunch. And we know these brothers are hearing Joseph cry out for help because they say later on in chapter 42, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So they hear Joseph begging for help, but their hearts are hard. Don't God, don't let our hearts be hard. And then in verse 25, continuing, he says, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead when their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So Judah sees this opportunity thinking, how can we benefit from this? 
Why kill our brother when we can make money off of him? So they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And then it says, verse 29, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So they cover everything up and go back to their dad with Joseph's bloody coat that they had dipped in this goat's blood. And Jacob, who deceived his father when he was young, is now deceived by his sons. And their trick works, and he thinks Joseph is for sure dead. So as we end, just two more things to take from this chapter. First, through all the sin, pain, and suffering, God is accomplishing his sovereign plan. We said this at the beginning, but I want to see it big picture now. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that through Adam, someone would come who would crush Satan's head. And God promised Abraham in Genesis 12.3 that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see God working that plan right here through the sin and pain and suffering. Later, when Joseph is second in command in Egypt, he looks back on the events of Genesis 37, and he says that God was fulfilling his plans when that was happening. It says in Genesis 45, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And, do not, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve life. For you a remnant on earth and to keep alive many for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me but God he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt three times God's the one who did this God's the one who brought me here Joseph sees God all over the most painful experiences of his life we see God working his sovereign hand even in this small detail you might have noticed when we read chapter 37 verses 15 through 18 Joseph can't find his brothers and he's like, where are they? They're supposed to be here in Shechem. And he's looking, can't find them. And it just so happens, just so happens, that there's a guy there who knows where they are. So he says, where are my brothers? Oh, I heard them say they're going to be in Dothan. So, oh, now he goes. Why is that detail in there? You just want to, like, why did God have Moses write that? You could have just cut that part out and just said, Joseph found them at Dothan. Why is that there? It's there because it's showing God is going to make sure Joseph gets to his brothers. Because God is the one bringing him down to Egypt, and God is the one who's going to raise him up in second command, and God is the one who's going to save his people. It's showing God is sovereignly working his plan. Is God accomplishing his plan across the earth now? Yes. Yes, praise God, he is. We should lament the sin we see, the way our country is rejecting God, the painful effects of sin across the world, but do not be shaken. We have a firm foundation. Our God rules and reigns. His plans are not being thwarted. They're being accomplished. And last, 
we see the many ways that Joseph points us to Christ. There are so many ways we see in this chapter how Joseph is pointing us to Christ. Here are just a few ways we see Christ in this chapter. Just like Jacob sent his beloved son on a mission, so also God the Father would send his beloved son in whom he was well pleased on a mission. Jesus did not just come to earth. He was sent by God the Father. Don't forget that Jesus was sent. Don't fall into the all too common error of thinking God the Father is the angry member of the Trinity and Jesus is the kind, compassionate one who steps in and says, Father, don't hurt them. I'll fix this. That's not what happened. God in love sent his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave, he gave his only Son. God the Father gave Christ in love. And just like Joseph went willingly, so also Jesus, in perfect obedience to the Father, came willingly. But there is a difference. Joseph had no idea what was going to happen. Joseph had no clue what his brothers were going to do to him. He wouldn't have gone if he would have known. But Jesus came knowing all that would happen to him, and he came willingly to go to the cross. Joseph saves his brothers, the very people who rejected him. And that theme is repeated throughout the Bible. God uses Moses to save a people that would repeatedly reject him. God uses David to save his brothers when they're facing Goliath and they reject David, but God uses David to save them anyways. And how many of the prophets were rejected by the very people they were sent to rescue? And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus was rejected by the very people he would bring salvation to. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And we all have rejected Christ in our sin, but in spite of that, Jesus died to save sinners like us anyway. Aren't you glad, if you're trusting in Christ, that your rejection of Christ does not get the last word, but Christ gets the last word. God saves us in spite of us, not because of us, in spite of us and all our rejection. We serve a merciful, merciful God. Joseph was stripped of his colorful robe, and the exact same wording is used when Jesus' robe is taken. In Matthew 27, 31, it says, And when they had mocked Jesus, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Joseph's robe was sprinkled with the blood of a goat, and his brothers presented that bloody robe to their father to try to cover up their sin. That bloody coat could fool their dad, but it could not remove the stain and guilt of their sin. But years later, Jesus' blood was spilt, and his blood is presented to God the Father as a sin offering for us. And unlike Joseph's bloody coat, Jesus' blood truly covers all our sin, all of it. If you're trusting in Christ, your sin, past, present, and future, are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. As the song says, what could wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our Heavenly Father sent His beloved Son on a mission to save sinners like us. Jesus is our true and better Joseph. So may God give all of us the grace to see through great sin to our great Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank You. You are so good. In the midst of our pain and our suffering, You're accomplishing Your plans. In the midst of all that's going on in the world, you are accomplishing your good and perfect plans. You offer healing for the hurting. You restore all that is broken. And we hope in you. Our hope is you. Help us to look past what we can see with the eyes of faith to see 
Christ and see you ruling and reigning and working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Thank you for the story of Joseph and how it points us to Jesus. Would you now be lifted up and praised? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.